Mandy Yakich from Creative Matters, and you're listening to Creative Matters On Air, where I have conversations with new and established artists from around New Zealand. I love to listen to artists' stories and learn about their creative process, and maybe you do too, which is why I've made this podcast, to inspire, inform and educate. I hope you can take away something positive and encouraging from each of these amazing stories to help you on your own creative journey. Hi and welcome to Creative Matters. Today I'm talking to photographic artist Anne-Marie Hope Cross. Anne-Marie was born in Wellington, New Zealand, grew up in Auckland and has lived in Alexandra, Central Otago since 2008. Anne-Marie uses three historic processes that date back 180 years to early pioneering photography techniques, some of which are referred to as cameraless photography. Her mouse trap camera is set up outside in her back garden. It takes six to eight hours to create the images and a lot of hoping that the weather does not change in the meantime. It can be fraught with peril, but it's the part I enjoy, says Anne-Marie. It's serendipitous, but nothing is guaranteed in life. Anne-Marie works intuitively, aware but not restrained by those who have gone before. She makes images to comment, to appreciate our world, and to satisfy her heart and mind. She shares her work, hoping that the images she makes will speak to others. In August 2017, Anne-Marie was diagnosed with a rare triple negative aggressive form of breast cancer at the age of 49. She wants to tell people the positive stories of breast cancer, of ploughing through, taking on challenge and accepting the changes cancer can bring. As Anne-Marie and her husband Eric Schusser are both photographers, they are in the unique position of being able to work together and put on paper the journey many go through as sufferers and carers dealing with cancer. It was a privilege to speak with Anne-Marie today. Her story of her unique photographic practice and creative process and how it is connected to her journey with breast cancer is inspirational and heartwarming. You can see images of her work on her blog post on our website, creativematters.co.nz, and also on her website, annemariehopecross.com. I've also included links to the process and artists that inspire her work at the bottom of the blog post if you'd like to learn more. My apologies for the echoey quality of my sound in this Zoom meeting. I accidentally recorded without my mic connected calling Anne-Marie and Alexandra. Good morning, Anne-Marie. Good morning. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you so much for um, being on this podcast and uh, welcome to Creative Matters. Thank you and thank you so much for the opportunity. You're welcome. All right, Anne-Marie, I know that you have many influences in your family, artistic and creative influences, so I can't wait to hear all about it. So can you please take us right back to the beginning and talk to us about your childhood and um, and yourself as a child? Sure. I uh, was born in Silver Stream in Upper Hutt, uh, Greater Wellington area, and uh, we moved to Auckland when I was young. And I lived in a, a fabulously supportive, encouraging family, mum and dad, younger sister and brother. And uh, we didn't have TV till I was a, about 13, which was probably a bit odd, but... Um, 
I see the benefits now. <laughs> we made things. Um, Dad built amazing scale model aircraft and we would go and fly them on airfields. And I have memories of open skies and skylarks and grasses and sunshine. Um, Mum was a gardener. Uh, she sewed and knitted. We were a musical family. Church was a big part of uh, our lives. Mum was the church organist. And it was a good family unit. I learned to play the clarinet and various other musical instruments. We made things, we did things, and um, when mum was out at choir on Thursday nights, dad and I would sneak into the kitchen and process films. Uh, he had studied photographic chemistry uh, in Cologne in Germany, and um, as part of that, and his own work at AGFA and his own love of photographic things, he instilled that in me and um, I guess I caught the bug early and we had a lot of uh, glass plate negatives which came from my mother's side of the family and, and beautiful wooden boxes and um, photographs from dad's side of the family. So really early photographic heritage which dad and I would look at together, we would do a bit of family history research but he was teaching me from quite an early age even before we had a dark room uh, to appreciate photography in all its different um, forms and at the same time uh, dad's father or parents I should say lived in um, Taupo and one of my earliest memories is of going to see them in their new house on the edge of Lake um, Topo and HHC, Henry Hope Cross, as he was known, uh, had built a darkroom and it still stands in my mind as the most fabulous darkroom a person could ever want. I don't recall actually doing anything in there. It was very much a case of look and don't touch. But again, there was that sense of magic and something special about that place. Mm, and that would have been, yeah, early on a sort of a special memory that's kind of stuck with you, I guess. Yes, totally. Yeah. Mm, his wife, Nan, um, my grandmother, she taught me about herbs. So at the same time as I was learning about the dark room, there was lavender and rosemary outside the back door. And she explained to me that they were useful. And somehow that's been an important little thing that's during my life yeah and that I guess you know you're interested in botanicals now and you love your garden and you know that's probably come from from that I guess quite possibly and of course mum and her mother and their love of gardening as well so lots of strands from the family uh, who've gone before mm, which is so lovely isn't it to kind of keep yeah those memories alive in a way yeah waka papa yeah exactly that's really cool so were you actually um, starting to take photographs as a child? Yes. <laughs> Subway, there's a photograph of me holding Dad's twin lens rolly, aged about 18 months, uh, doubtless posed, but it's a beautiful shot. <laughs> and I can't remember when I didn't have a camera of some sort that Dad had lent me or given me. Um, I really didn't know what I wanted to take photographs of, but... I just uh, played with it over time and um, I guess initially it was the landscape. But that, yeah, I, I was looking and seeing and experimenting 
but it was the love of making the photographs that um, is really my most enduring sort of memory rather than particularly making images of some particular subject matter. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? And that, you know, that that fascination for the process is so evident in your work, you know. Yes. That it's it's really kind of fundamentally process-based, isn't it, in some ways? Totally, yeah, totally. Mm, it's really interesting. So did you explore the arts or photography through high school? I couldn't. I went to Epsom Girls Grammar. They didn't teach photography at that stage. I did art uh, right outside my comfort zone, still have a couple of pieces I'm quite proud of. I did have a wonderful teacher who helped me with the um, crayons and pastels and whatever else and learnt to print things with a potato, um, which was fun. (laughs) But I was very clear that it was actually about the process of photography and I couldn't do that for School C Art. Um, But that was okay. I think already by that stage we'd worked out that I was probably going to pursue some sort of photographic qualification after school mm. and, um dad was able to teach me things in the darkroom by that stage we had a darkroom uh, dad traveled a lot for work um for agfa going to um europe and i would go and delve into the darkroom on my own and did some slightly scary things but didn't blow the place up which is good that's good Always encouraging. And, um, of course, you learn a lot when you're having to do it by yourself Mm. without someone watching over you. And so just thinking about, um, you know, your your photography sort of plans for your future, I guess, it's like um, were you thinking coming out of high school that you'd like to make a career out of photography or did you think you'd like to be a photographic artist or, you know, what were you thinking at that point? I hadn't really realised that art was a thing in terms of making photographs. So I was heading down a commercial track. Um, I went to Whitecliffe Art School and did a Diploma of Photographic Arts, which was all I could do in Auckland at that point in time. Uh, I worked in an advertising agency for a couple of years and realised that commercial photography was really not my thing. And I needed to make photographs for myself. photographing cooked chickens or Mm -hmm. something like that was you know and lighting in a studio basement was just not me I there was a a deep need to kind of be outdoors and sunshine and natural light and Mm -hmm. doing it my way yeah (laughs) and I guess I guess in that with that kind of commercial work it wasn't so processed process focused it was uh, about the result which was not really your thinking was it no and you know you were of course, it's good to do what an art director says, but that wasn't um, what was in my heart. Mm, yeah. So and I guess I, it didn't feel so creative for you. Not not for me. No, not at all. Yeah. So what happened after your, your commercial side of things? Career change. I guess I was uh, trying to follow what I would loosely talk, uh, call a sort of a conventional lifestyle, um, you know, earn a living get married, have a house, all that kind of normal stuff. And um, it was after my ex left that I decided it was really time for me to do things my way. And I recall 
when I was in form two, a um, teacher had said to me, um, to thine own self be true. And I thought by the stage I was in my 30s and I thought, this is my time. Actually, dad had died young, um, 66, of bowel cancer. And I realised that I had to seize the day. If I wanted to make photographs, I was going to go and make photographs and try and earn a living to support that. But I was going to do it my way and I had been volunteering uh, for various um, ambulance events down in central Otago, fell in love with the area and decided I wanted to work down here. And so I uh, very bravely bought a house on Trade Me and the dream was to ride my triathlon bike fast in a straight line and do more with my photography. Mm. I had a big Newfoundland dog, put him in the boot Drove down here, didn't know a soul, started my ambulance job and haven't knocked back. That's incredible. And at that point, were you thinking, I'm going to also really focus on my on my art practice? Yes, that was, it was ride the bike fast and straight line and do more with my photography. And no more specific than that, other than there was a deep desire in me to do more with my photography. And I had no idea how that was going to look. I had no idea of the images I was going to make. I was just literally following my heart yeah yeah so good though that's brilliant and you know it's just been such an amazing decision for you obviously so um I love the story um, that I've heard that you met your husband Eric um on the first day of your new job so can you tell us about that that's the best story ever oh yes so uh you started work as an ambulance officer and our first call was to a dear Scottish lady and a chap came out and uh, gave an amazing handover to my colleague and I was very impressed. I thought he was the doctor and uh, he was actually the son of our patient and that was Eric Schusser and he uh, was a volunteer ambulance officer, hence the really good handover and um, thought he looked quite nice and uh, he had a nice smile and, of course, because he was a volunteer ambulance officer, his day job was outdoor education teacher. On Sunday nights, he would go down and work at the ambulance station and uh, so he had to work with me <laughs> and we got talking about um, our both having grown up in dark rooms and our love of photography and he taught me very patiently how to ski cross-country, something I had been interested in and... It's gone from there. Yeah, the rest is history. Yeah. Amazing. And you ended up getting married and, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, and he's just the most awesome person and I'm so privileged. Yeah, how amazing. And um, I'm actually speaking to him tomorrow and his podcast is going to come out the following Friday after yours. So that's going to be a lovely thing to interview two people from the same household, a couple who uh, both have this passion and interest for photography but have very different practices. Yes, and our work is so entwined and I think it helps to see one with the other because yeah. that's the way we work. Yeah, absolutely. It's so great. And we'll hear more about your practice and process in a second. Um, so five years ago, Anne-Marie, you were diagnosed with breast cancer and I have read that you looked at square in the eye and you want to express to people the positive stories of breast cancer, of ploughing through, taking on challenge 
and accepting the changes cancer can bring. And I think, you know, when I read that, I just thought, well, that's an amazing attitude. And already the sort of the links that I've had with you, I can see that you're an incredibly positive person. So uh, can you tell us about that, that journey? Thank you. Well, I guess everybody has their challenges in life. Um, mine happens to be breast cancer. And I guess it doesn't matter what the label is for the challenge. It's For me, there shouldn't be stigma about any of these things. This is probably the ambulance officer talking. <laughs> but to, to recognise that here is a challenge and what are we going to do about it? And I also want to raise awareness because uh, it's not always easy to detect some of these things. For me, uh, I could potentially have been found a whole lot earlier which might have been better but you know I knew I wasn't well and I'd been several times to the doctor and was made to feel like a hypochondriac and it was so fortuitous that I had a mammogram they didn't find anything on that but they sent me for further checks and it was literally a hands-on pat down at the breast clinic in Dunedin where a nurse found quite a significant lump and it had spread into my lymph nodes. And unfortunately, it's called triple negative breast cancer, which is aggressive and difficult to treat. And so I'm finding. But at the same time, it was a huge relief because I knew something was really wrong. I was so exhausted. I was running around doing all these jobs, trying to earn a living. And it actually gave me permission to say, I can't do all this that has to be okay. I'm going to lie on my bed and think about photography and um, make things work for me. And so I, I gave up my work. It was very hard to become a patient. I prefer to care for people not to be cared for. Mm -hmm. um, but to think about photography and making images and somehow finding a silver lining in this. Mm, which is amazing to be able to kind of think like that and have that sort of attitude you know there were tears <laughs> yeah I bet and I'm, I'm sure you had some days where you weren't feeling as strong mm. oh uh, yeah of course I'd be lying to say it was easy yeah but that's the scary thing about cancer isn't it that you don't always know that you're not well I mean you obviously knew something was wrong mm. but it's very hard to kind of pinpoint isn't it sometimes yeah it's also about being honest with yourself I think and again not giving up and I had the advantage of medical knowledge and um, being a fairly determined person, might be a bit of Scottish heritage or something. And, uh, you know, you know in your heart when something's not right and you have to keep on to address things. Hiding stuff doesn't work. No. And it's, um, it's such a journey, isn't it? Just kind of getting your head around things and, and working on your mindset and, you know. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And it, does, it gives you a new strength, I guess. Yes, you have to dig deep, but it does. And you can learn things and you can meet new people along the way and have moments of joy, and that is even more precious. Mm, yeah, and you appreciate every day, I guess, in a different yeah. way. Yeah. There's a phrase, um, dancing in the rain, which I think of sometimes, and that's what it's about. It's about finding those little moments of joy and really celebrating those. Mm, yeah. And I guess, you know, even though it's not the journey that you would choose, it has given you time for your art practice. So that has been quite a sort of cathartic 
thing for you through this time. So can you tell us how you kind of managed to start prioritising your art practice? Well, uh, I was in my late 40s when I was diagnosed and it was three months after Eric and I got married. And it was a bolt out of the blue, obviously, but 5.15 the next morning I woke up and I recalled a time when uh, our family had travelled when Dad was still alive to uh, Germany to see where Mum and Dad had lived in Cologne and um, it was also, I think, perhaps a little bit about Dad's retirement. But we had gone to Heidelberg Castle and there was an apotheca museum there, which is a pharmacy museum, and for some bizarre reason I was captivated by it. And I had loosely had in the back of my head for a long time images of bottles, but at 5.15, the morning after the diagnosis, I woke up and I could visualise some of these images and I set about making them. Wow. And I was lying on my bed because I was pretty ill from all the chemo and you know multiple surgeries and blah 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 but I could visualize how I was going to make these images and how they were going to look and it was inspiring and it was exciting and it kept me going Mm, how amazing yeah yeah Yeah, it's incredible so had you actually started making photographs and started that process before then or were you just then thinking okay this is what I want to do how am I going to go about it uh, so backtracking a little bit, uh, I had moved to Central Otago in 2008 and I was sort of fiddling around trying to find my way with how I wanted to make images and the sorts of images I wanted to make. And when I was unpacking uh, into my home, I'd found a couple of um, little brochures that my father had brought back many years before and I don't even really remember him giving them to me, but they were about... Um, the earliest days of photography and a chap called William Henry Fox Talbot. And, of course, I was on my own. I had plenty of time in the evenings or whenever I wasn't working and I went Googling. And I learned about Fox Talbot, hadn't learned about him in art school, and uh, discovered that there was a couple, Mark Scully, Mark Osterman in France, Scully Osterman, and they were teaching workshops uh, over in England teaching Fox Talbot's very first process and that took my fancy I liked the idea of it and I sold the triathlon bike and a few other things got a little scholarship and hightailed it over to England in 2011 to learn about the dawn of photography. That's incredible wow and that I mean that was the beginning really wasn't it of of a totally the rest of my lifetime, I can imagine, you know, working on that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, so it was a little bit of a drama getting over there. It was winter here, it snowed, the flight got cancelled. <laughs> I arrived a day late and uh, so I was slightly frazzled and I got there and it's a beautiful little old stone village. They film, you know, Jane Austen-type movies there and um, it's near Bath in Wiltshire and... It was a slow pace of life. It was a complete slowing down after the Russian drama of getting there. And everything I knew about photography went out the window. We had beautiful Italian art paper, which we were coating with a salt and silver mix. Had to wait for that to dry. Put a leaf on it. Put it outside in the sunshine to expose because it needs UV um, in order to make an image. 
And it was such a light bulb moment. I, I just realised sitting there surrounded by these old stone walls out in the sunshine, sitting in the grass, literally, that this was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It was amazing. That is incredible. And, you know, I know you believe in serendipity, but it just seems like everything was kind of aligned for you to get over there. And (laughs) and somehow, and after seeing those pamphlets like that, you know, it's just one thing sort of lined up, everything lined up, I guess, and off you went. And it's quite an unusual thing to, to go and do, you know, on the other side of the world all of a sudden. And a bit random, really, because I had no um, real reason for doing it other than I felt I had to. Mm. And when you don't have lots of money, that's either brave or stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I felt I had to do it. And to my mother's credit, she supported me and uh, actually came with me to keep house while I did this and we went on to Scotland afterwards and uh, visited some of the places where her family had come from which was also precious for me so Mm. um, Eric wasn't able to go of course because he was having to work but it was wonderful to have mum's company and to for her to be able to enjoy it too and of of course she's been a huge part of my journey um, supporting my photography and um, as dad had when he was alive so it was quite precious to have her there and keep that link going yeah totally that's amazing so what happened after you did that workshop I guess you were feeling incredibly motivated yes well part of the I did two workshops actually the dawn of photography which was about photogenic drawing uh, Fox Talbot's very first process which then led to uh us all being able to make negatives and positives. And then I did a second workshop, uh, which was the wet and dry collodion process. So that's an 1850s photographic process. Rocket science compared with photogenic drawing. Uh, I got back home, didn't know a soul in New Zealand who was doing any of these things. And, of course, no way of finding chemicals and all the rest of it so it did take me a wee while to try and access some of these things and figure out how I was actually going to do this at home but I did get there. Mm, That's amazing and um, you didn't have a dark room at that time but you built one in your house. Correct and uh, the wonderful thing about some of these processes is that particularly photogenic drawing fairly slow so I was able to convert the laundry and um, use that for quite some time and it's it's fairly simple you don't need a lot of room and I've spent enough time in dark rooms to know how to work fairly smart in a small space which has helped Mm. yeah that's great so the washing the washing got neglected (laughs) in favor of the photography or did you relocate uh who cares about the washing (laughs) (laughs) exactly I agree um so Anne-Marie the um The processes that you use are obviously um, processes that a lot of us aren't familiar with. You know, I'd never really heard about it until I started researching your work. And um, it would be nice if you could just kind of paint us a bit of a picture of what the photographs look like and and feel like, and then also talk about the the different processes that you use. So um, we have got some links on the bottom of your blog post, which, um, which lead us to, you know, 
um, talking about the process or seeing videos about the actual process that you're going to be speaking of, which is great. So people can have a look at that. They'll also be able to see your images of your beautiful work on your blog post. So that will be helpful. But if you could just yeah, paint a bit of a picture for us um, about your process and your final product. Sure. So photogenic drawing uh, takes a long time to expose, uh, especially if it's in a camera. I use a replica of Fox Talbot's um, very first camera known as a mousetrap camera because apparently it looked like a Victorian mousetrap. And it has a lens and it's a very simple, it was based on a camera obscura, if folk know what that is. Uh, and I coat paper and I put it in the back of the camera and put that out to expose. It takes about six to eight hours, depending on how much UV you've got. So you're contending with um, movement, you know, if the wind gets up or if the rain comes, uh, shadows and all that sort of thing. But the effect is fairly soft. Uh, there's not a lot of detail because the lens is quite poor, uh, but I like that. And I hope that there's a sort of a, a slow, meditative, ethereal sort of look. They don't really look like photographs, although technically they are. Um, could you compare them perhaps to charcoal drawings or light? I don't know, but mm. um, they, they're soft and that's important to me. Mm. They have a real softness and they feel quite um, textural even though they're not, but they just have, I think, a more textural feel than your average modern photograph. Yes. Some of that, of course, is because of the paper uh, when you, because we scan the negatives generally. I mean, sometimes, you know, there are originals available for sale which are a negative um, or a positive, but I won't get too technical. But a lot of the time we make limited edition um, or one-off reproduction prints from my small paper negative so that uh, texture from the paper comes through which I think is quite beautiful yeah it is beautiful so do you set up the the mousetrap camera focused on some flowers for example in your garden or do you actually put the um, flowers in the camera is that no, the it's all out in the garden I've photographed buildings uh, in the past but uh, especially since my diagnosis I've been working almost solely in the garden and because I love the garden anyway and it just works for me. I can lie down and have a rest while the camera's working its magic. So I have a little uh, bower in the corner of the garden and uh, a table and I will set up uh, a scene which can sometimes be quite intricate um, depending on what mad thing has taken my fancy at the time. And uh, the camera goes on the tripod and um, points at the scene, and right. um, I pray for sunshine. <laughs> oh, yeah, you need the sunshine. And could you actually um, just put the camera onto, like, a flower in the garden, or does it have to be kind of arranged and set up? No, no, you can point it at anything, and if you can focus the lens uh, and see something in the back of the camera, you know you can make an image very roughly, yeah. Mm. And what happens if the sun goes away? It's not such a good image. <laughs> Mm. And do you like it sometimes when it's not such a good image? Does it still have an interesting effect? Uh, yeah, it can do. Um, when I was uh, still experimenting in the early days, I set up a vase of um, 
anemone, um, you know, wind flowers in autumn anemone in the garden and um, the wind actually got up a little bit and I was really annoyed about that and I nearly didn't process the image, but I did and actually I love it because there is a sense of movement yeah. in the flowers, which I would never have thought would work. So mm -hmm. that was a really interesting lesson. Yeah, that would be beautiful. I can imagine that. Yeah. yeah. No, it's interesting. And I guess, you know, you're obviously, you obviously enjoy the experiment, experimental aspect of, of the process and not being completely sure what the final product's going to be like. That's part of the magic and also pushing the boundaries. Uh, what can I do with this? <laughs> what mm. can't I do with it? Uh, what else can we try and what's going to happen? It mm. can be intensely frustrating. Sometimes I have to make an image four or five times before I've got something that I'm happy with, but it's always a learning process and it's just completely addictive. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and I guess you have some sort of happy accidents quite often, where you, like the movement with the, with the wind where you think actually, and that could take you down a whole new path, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And um, what other challenges do you find with that with that process? Uh, I guess the limits of the camera, because it is a very simple camera. It's a, a poor lens. Uh, I have, but I love it. I absolutely love my mousetrap camera. It is my most precious possession. And I have bought a, um, a bigger Gandalfi. Um, more modern bellows camera which I also work with but uh, if I'm going to use a camera my preference will always be the mousetrap camera and the limitations of it mm. I don't always use a camera though um, there is such a thing as cameraless photography and that was actually where Fox Talbot started uh, making simple images of lace and flowers and I love doing my own modern variation of, of that and I've really pushed the boundaries with that as well. So it doesn't need to have a camera to make an image. Um, it's very much part of my ethos. Yeah, well, which just sounds really sort of hard to imagine. Yeah, so yeah. how does that work? So essentially whatever process you're using, uh, and I use several different photographic processes, you can make... Um, you, you're using a substrate, you have chemicals on your paper or glass or tin and put an object onto it and expose it to light, to UV, and that will make an image. And uh, I have loads of fun, um, again, pushing the boundaries, uh, making images like that. And I've been working on a series recently on endemic birds of New Zealand, which, you know, I can't put my camera for six hours at a bird <laughs> and expect it to sit still. And <laughs> most of the birds I'm making images of are either so extinct I'm never going to see them in real life or uh, not around me anyway. So through various processes of trickery and um, whatnot, I'm making images out in the garden of birds without a camera. Wow. That's amazing. And uh, have you done? Have you used that process with other with other um, themes as well? Yes, totally. So in 2013, I was really privileged to go back to Laycock as artist in residence, 
and I spent uh, many weeks making images and using the photogenic drawing process, um, taking it to new levels. And I was captivated by Fox Talbot's beautiful library. And I made a series of bookmarks, which were, again, cameraless images about the books, the spines, the gold on the spines, which were just adorable. And uh, then a cloister series, um, which is on and off ongoing. Laycock uh, was built in 1232 by Ella of Salisbury, who was important to me. And she built it as um, a nunnery. There were cloisters, um, which are still there. And they have a real sense of peace and um, a sense of safety, which is really important to me. And these ancient buildings um, and stones you know, I had the opportunity to spend hours there and contemplate the women who had been there, who had lived there. They weren't necessarily nuns. Sometimes they went there to probably escape men <laughs> or, you know, whatever, and be in a place of safety. And that sits deep within me, and I want to make some images about that. But the cloister series were about making shapes loosely representative of the cloisters, but also thinking about the windows and a place of safety, but also by placing flowers within those cloisters. I was thinking about Fox Talbot's garden mm. and that those early days of photography. Mm. And that cloister series is so beautiful the way you have the, sort of stand, the, the church window shape um, and then the blank paper around that. I really love that. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah, it's, it's really... It's very striking. So, and that's there's the sort of brown brownness of, of of those images. So, that how do you actually apply the color? Or do you have any choice in what sort of color you have? Uh, I have tones of brown. So that's the photogenic drawing process without a camera, and uh, it depends how you expose it as to and and then process it afterwards, uh, tone it, etc. As to exactly um, what sort of a brown you're going to get. Mm. That's interesting. And then, again, the, the texture of the paper comes through and it's just yeah. its a really, really beautiful effect. And then the bookmarks, it has a sort of similar feel, the bookmark series to that, to the cloister series in a way, doesn't it? Same sort of colours and ideas, but in a more sort of rectangular yeah. feel. Yeah. That's really cool. So interesting. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's just really beautiful work. And it's the kind of work that, you know, Somebody might see it and just wonder what it is exactly. I mean, it almost could be a painting sometimes. Yes, yeah, but it's made with light. Yeah, and love. <laughs> light and love. How good is that? <laughs> so uh, just going back then to the series, the different series that you've um, created. So a lot of those series are responding to your breast cancer journey and sort of how you're feeling and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it'd be really interesting to sort of hear about each of these series and, you know, where the ideas came from and then what you've actually made in response to that. So um, to start with the still series, that was when you initially had the diagnosis, wasn't it? Yes, and I was so conscious that I was exhausted and 
I'm a doing person. We grew up doing all those things and it's not easy for me to sit still. I'm not what I would normally call a couch potato. So I, but I knew I had to be still. And when I thought of those bottles and I realized I was going to make images using a very slow process, it just uh, fell into place really. And so I would, I read a lot. Um, I absolutely love reading and even when I wasn't actually able to read words, I would look at pictures, um, quite a buyer of uh, books, photographic books and art books. And um, I was researching Heidelberg Castle and, you know, the Apotheca Museum and so forth. And uh, things would come to mind. And a, a bottle of perfume that my father had brought back from Germany uh, many years ago, uh, I've still got. And so that became an image and um, various other things which then were metaphors or the bottles became metaphors for things, memories, things which were important to me, Um, even some minus wine because we need some wine and some joy in our lives, you know, Uh, a link to the past perhaps um, of Central Otago but um, all sorts of little strands of thoughts and things that were important to me and memories became the series, um, which I call still, yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And can you describe what those photographs look like? Well, they're all made with a mousetrap camera in the back of uh, the garden and they happened probably over about a year or 18 months or so as I was able. And they are, I hope they have a sense of stillness and um, peace. They're very personal images. They contain elements of things that are really important to me. Um, Garden, um, plants, and um, some of those, the meanings behind some of those flowers Mm. or plants and Mm. moments in time which are significant. Mm. Um, Also, I was aware of... um, the painter Mirandi, who just painted bottles in his studio all his life, which gave me hope. I thought I don't actually need to go anywhere. I can do this in the garden. Yeah, brilliant. You know, so things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's like a still life. I mean, it's it's a nice sort of, it's a nice um, analogy, I guess, the still still series is kind of talking of you needing to be still and contemplative, but also the still life kind of idea so you were sort of arranging these bottles and flowers and things in a sort of composition and then um, it has that sort of beautiful soft black and white feel doesn't it I hope so yes yeah very cool they're beautiful and then moving on from that how did you go to Thursday's Child series well I was starting to recover from a gruelling couple of years of treatment and, you know, far too much chemo and uh, surgeries and whatnot. And um, a friend died of breast cancer and I had this dreadful feeling it was happening to me and then I discovered that actually it was, it had come back again. And um, again, serendipity, I, I was having an, I was part of an exhibition up in Auckland and the gentleman who had organized it was a surgeon and he put me in touch with a really good neck surgeon which was what I needed and 
that next surgeon put me in touch with a really good oncologist in Auckland and we stayed with mum and um, I had my treatment up in Auckland and my surgery um, flying back every three weeks or so. It was um, a pretty rough year, 2019. But again, I was looking at pictures and of course I had access to mum and dad's books at that time and and new things to look at and um, that was good for my brain. <laughs> um, I should add that mum was an occupational therapist and I'm sure that's um, eked into my soul somehow, somewhere. <laughs> and so I was quite gainfully employed mentally um, yeah. looking at things and getting ideas and I'm Thursday's child in the nursery, nursery rhyme and Thursday's child has far to go, whether it's literally 1,700 kilometres to Auckland or 12,000 miles to the UK to learn the processes. Uh, whatever um, has far to go means, that sort of resonated with me and I ran with that idea and um, just started making different images because it felt like the still series was finished. I didn't want to pushing push something that, you know, I didn't, I was past that. I wanted to move mm. on. Yeah. And in a sense, some of the Thursday's child images are a little bit dark. Um, my friend died. I was really scared of dying. I wasn't, I didn't want to. <laughs> I've got living to do. That's and I guess some of those images, I've deliberately left them as negative rather than converting them to positive. And so that has quite a different effect on the final look of the image. Mm. Um but that became Thursday's child. And at the same time, Eric um, had decided that we needed to make some photo books. And that was a little bit uh, left a field for me, but that was really good for him to be making photo books of our work while I was um, resting. Mm. And, of course, that became first still intrusion and then the second book, um, Thursday's Child, of the images that he made in response to what we were going through, as well as, of course, my own images. Yeah. Mm, which is such a beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a lovely record of this time that you're going through together. And I hope it's a positive thing too because, yes, okay, there's a diagnosis in the background, but it's also it's a love story. It's yeah. a story of us meeting and making work together so differently, but linked and I reckon that's a good thing oh that's it's, it's such a beautiful thing I mean it's it makes me feel teary just hearing oh. you say that you know it's that's such a special thing for any loving couple and you know how amazing to be able to bring you, you both of your practices together in that way yeah you know, and have a record of it you know you're creating a legacy privileged yeah that's so great and and obviously Eric's very supportive of you and what you're going through and, and your own practice as well oh he's amazing and when I moved into uh his house he built me a dark room which was he offered me diamonds and I preferred a dark room <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's, uh, kind of hilarious but actually also really precious because my dark room is such a precious thing and he built it for me um with love mm, that's really special and so Eric actually has quite a lot to do with your sort of final process part of the photography, doesn't he? Uh, yes, there would be, um, it wouldn't work without him, basically. I'm very naughty. I just want to make images and 
uh, he has quite a strict rule that nothing goes out of this house without Anne-Marie's work having been photographed. And I'm immensely grateful. He scans my images and photographs them and um, is ensuring that there will be a legacy. Mm, that's great. And, and then photo box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, um, I guess, you know, you have to do that, don't you? You have to have somebody doing that for you if you wanted to sell work or show work. I presume you need to have have that. Or do you ever actually show your original negatives or positives? Uh, the mousetrap camera negatives, no, I don't, because they're probably just a couple of inches big. Um, no, no, that's a bit wrong. I don't know. A bit, sort of mostly almost A5 in size, I suppose. Mm. Um, so I don't show those because I don't think people would really understand them. But uh, if we make prints from those, then that wouldn't happen without Eric. I actually hate computers. He did encourage me in the early days to try digital and I realised I couldn't stand it. I am a manual process person and yeah. we've both, both accepted that and worked it out and so he does the all-important um, kind of back room stuff that makes it um, kept. Yeah, and sort of comes to fruition, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The final, the final work. Yeah, which is so good. Yeah, you know what? A, what a great combination of, of passions. Amazing, eh? Brilliant. Good choice of husband. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going on from there, uh, I know you have a, a connection, a, a quite a deep connection to poetry and other sort of readings. So you went from Thursday's Child into a Keats moment. Can you tell us about that series? Yes. Well, after 2019, I started to recover and I was doing more cross-country skiing than I'd been able to do in a wee while, which was wonderful. And it felt like uh, the light was sort of coming back into my world a wee bit and I had more energy and uh, I was gardening and everything was good. And I would love to be a wordsmith. I'm not, but I appreciate good writing and poetry and uh, I can't even think how but I became aware of um, Keats who died at age 25 and you know uh, an artistic life cut short like mm -hmm. many. Isn't and incredible? Keats was somebody we all know and we know his work and he died at 25. I know I know. You realise that? He worked hard and did well didn't he with all his yeah. Yeah, but um, at the same time, Eric was encouraging me to go big, and I've always resisted that. My images, uh, to me, feel like they need to be small and intimate, but I did listen to him, and we tried some bigger prints, and um, one of the mad things I was doing, even back at art school, um, to the lecturer's consternation, was um, playing with colour and hand-colouring images and things like that, and so in my grandfather's both used to do that. So I delved into the uh, family archives and fished some stuff out and, and started experimenting with putting colour onto these big images that uh, Eric was, when I say big, on A2 sheets of paper, uh, encouraging me to make. And, and actually I discovered that I loved that and I don't make a lot of images in winter because there's not enough UV light in central Otago. So that has almost become my winter thing. I'll make images in summer and then I'll hand colour them 
during mm. the week. We're not skiing, which is pretty cool. Oh, yeah, I love that. And so that lovely sort of, again, that real softness of the colour that you're adding to the softness of the, the black and white, that is just so such a beautiful combination. How do you actually add, I mean, what 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 materials are you using for the colour? It varies uh, depending on what I'm trying to achieve. Uh, I use a whole range of things from photographic dyes and oils to uh, acrylics. And in the past, I've used at art school, I used pastels and all sorts of things. So um, at the moment, it's mostly watercolour. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And then do you actually... Um, uh, do you have a print of the photograph and then you're you're applying the colour to the photograph print, photographic print? Yes. And then do you get prints made of that or do you just no. have the original? That original is sold. Mm. Beautiful. And I'm so grateful that people buy them. It's just wonderful. Yeah, mm. I'm thrilled by that. You know, oh, that people yeah. love them and are prepared to part with their hard-earned money for them. Yeah, and I'm sure they are very grateful that you've made something so beautiful. And, you know, it is incredible, Anne-Marie, that you do have, well, you're probably one of the only women people in, in New Zealand creating this kind of photographic work. But you're also, you, I think you have one of the biggest collections in the world. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, those who do learn about photogenic drawing usually go on to uh, and inverted commas, more exciting, more challenging processes. But I have stuck, to, stuck with photogenic drawing just because I love it. Uh, and apparently um, my body of photogenic drawings is the second biggest in the world, um, the first being, of course, Fox Torbitz himself. Wow. How amazing is that? Mm. So you're, you're creating your own legacy and, you know, you'll probably be somebody that people will study in 200 years time as a pioneer in the antipodes yeah, kind of bizarre because fox talbot never came here of course but um yeah. i hope that i'm he talked about having started a process which other folk would build on and i hope that i am doing that yeah i think you are which is really special isn't it yeah and it's a privilege and a joy to be able mm. to do that and to go wild and try new things. <laughs> mm, absolutely, yeah, so interesting. And um, you've—I know you've done another series um, relating to your love of music. So that's the Earth Music and um, Pencil Rosso. So can yeah. you tell us about that? It's really interesting. So uh, Pencil Rosso. Uh, those are cyanotypes, which was a process invented in 1842 by Sir John Herschel, who was a friend of Fox Torbett's. And uh, it was made famous by Anna Atkins, who did some beautiful works of seaweed and things like that. So folks should Google Anna if they don't know her. She probably produced the first photo book of her cyanotypes. And um, I was driving... This was before I had been diagnosed and I was driving to Invercargill for work and listening to Beethoven because music is important to me and Beethoven with all his medical struggles, this is kind of weird, isn't it, um, has always resonated with me and I was listening to his triple concerto and the second movement Largo and I, I just hit repeat, repeat, repeat all the way down to Invercargill and uh, was imagining how I would make this work look this work of Beethoven's look in my own 
medium. And so that led to several uh, works, which I hope they're intended really to be um, homage to um, composers and works that I adore, um, reinterpreted in my own way, um, using flowers or leaves or something that tell of my emotion response to the music but it's also very important to me that there is um, some of that music in the piece because I read music and I want people who also read music to be able to know what this piece is speaking of. Mm. Yeah and it's another language I guess isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And it's really beautiful and that's so you see that the manuscript or the, the piece of music and then your flowers sort of around it. It's just gorgeous. Thank you. And you've got this sort of that bright blue with white in those ones. Mm. Yeah, which are really just really striking. And I, you know, I have a connection to music as well and and the power of music, you know, how it can take you back to a period in your life or you can connect with it for different reasons. I also have that connection with Beethoven I lived in Scotland for a few years as a child and my mum was very sick with a brain tumour and um, she nearly died. And my dad used to come home while she was in hospital and listen to Beethoven and Partial Symphony is the one that really gets me going. If I hear it now, it's just like, oh, my God, you know, it's a real, it, I just can't help have a bit of a cry because it it takes me back to that time and, you know, that experience that I went through as a child and that connection I, I developed with my dad and, you know, all those things. And it's just, yeah, it's it's powerful stuff. It is. It is. And such a privilege to have access to this music and this artistry from generations before, mm. but it speaks to us today. Mm. And do you listen to a lot of classical music? Uh, sometimes. Because my brain's a tad on the fried side, um, I have to sort of um, moderate that. But I have a whole range of music that I love to listen to from literally um, uh, Augustinian nuns, peaceful chanting kind of stuff to um, there's uh, a David Bowie song and some of my music and or some of my work, I should say, and um, all sorts of things captivate me. But really. Um, um, probably sort of Beethoven, Chopin, um, some Mozart because I played the clarinet and love the clarinet quintet and concerto, etc. Mm. Um, and those are things that I played growing up in, in orchestras and bands as well. So, but there's a whole wide range of things that just jump out at me at different times. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's so beautiful. And your work is in the collection of. Um, the Fox Tol Tolbert Museum in the UK and also in our very own National Museum, Te Papa, which is amazing. How did that happen? Oh, I'm blessed, really. Um, Eric, um, through his photo books, decided we were going to Wellington uh, to the photo book festival held there a couple of years ago and um, some lovely people um, bought my books and one of them was my dear friend Poppy and also Lisa Mitchell who was the or is the, um, the curator in the photographic department in Te Papa and uh, it came from that and I had a wonderful visit uh, with Lisa looking at um, 
Dobby's cyanotypes um, behind the scenes at Te Papa, um, which was very precious. And I'm very grateful that Te Papa have wanted to buy the still series and um, record them for my little place in New Zealand's photographic history. Yeah, and it's, you know, you really are creating your own place with your work, which is so unique to New Zealand. Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's something I never learned about at art school, and that's a pity, but if these things can be recorded for the future and other people can learn about them and know that there are so many ways of making images, of making photographs, and it doesn't need to have a lot of high technology and it can be slow and meditative and, I hope, beautiful, it just opens the world up for more opportunity for people and so that's precious to me that these things can be kept and recorded for the future Mm, absolutely yeah that's such a beautiful process and um, you know commercially you I guess it would be kind of difficult to sell your work in some ways it's not the kind of work that you're going to put all over your website and sell hundreds of prints so how do you go about the commercial side of, of selling and exhibiting Fairly early after I moved to Central Otago, I joined a collective in Old Cromwell Town called Hullabaloo, and I was there for about 10 years, which was wonderful. They, uh, My work did sell, which surprised and delighted me, but um, that's when I realised that actually I could at least cover the costs of making the work. And uh, since that time, I mean, I'm, I'm actually terrible at trying to approach galleries, and there is unfortunately quite an education required because it's not your normal uh, sort of work to look at and and nobody knows about it particularly in New Zealand but I've been really fortunate that uh, here in Central Otago Ede Gallery have taken me on and have learnt really well about the processes and what I'm doing and um, I'm so grateful to them in particular Mm. for uh, um, making it work for me. Mm, that's great. And that's the sort of leap of faith from them, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's been um, hugely encouraging. And then from time to time, people might see an image on, you know, Instagram or something like that. And people do contact um, Eid or me or preferably the gallery or, you know, anywhere else that they, because I've exhibited in other places around the country from time to time. And it's just wonderful that people want to buy the work. Mm, yeah, it's great. And you have a limited edition prints. Is that from all your works or? No. no just a original? very few, yeah. 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 So it's it's not easy to get get the, your hands on an Anne-Marie Hope cross. <laughs> but <laughs> if you do, it's well worth it, I would say. Well, the probably the ones that fly out the door the most are the uh, Wildflower series and that came about because when I was at Laycock uh, doing the artist residency in 2013, I discovered wildflower meadows, which are not really a thing in New Zealand. 97% of them have been lost since the 1930s because of you know what everybody's doing, mm, building wow. and pushing the land back, etc. Mm. And I realised that wildflower meadows are quite beautiful. Get down on your hands and knees and examine them and learn about biodiversity and I started off making some of those with the photogenic drawing process and then I came home and decided to do that with the cyanotype process, the blue process. 
and they are very loosely wildflower meadows. They contain lots of flowers from my garden and they're just celebrating gardening and joy and, you know, um, beautiful little flowers and leaves really and mm. people love those and those are all originals and I'll keep making them for as long as people want to buy them yeah yeah how beautiful so I've just I've just made the connection actually the cy- cyanotype is that it cyanotype yeah. is is the reference to cyan the, the color of blue correct ah okay good I'm learning about this process well done you <laughs> Took me a while, but you know, got there in the end. Um, so wow, that's that's really interesting. You know, your your practice and process is is fascinating. Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about about your practice? I'm keeping on, keeping on. <laughs> I have so many ideas and yeah. crazy thoughts about. Oh, I'd like to make an image that looks like that, and it's all in my head because I can't draw to save myself. So uh, I have this vision of how I want something to look and then I have to work out how I'm physically going to do that which Mm. can be very challenging (laughs) Mm, I bet and so what do you see in in your future with your art practice I um I have so much I want to do I would like to make uh, a little book which folk can purchase um on my earth music series and I'd like to make a little book on my wildflowers these are sort of like art books that you know you make 150 of them or something and and that's it there's a really big book which we would like to produce you know sort of of all my work to date I'm still working on my endemic bird series and uh, then there are some other sort of slightly loosely as yet undefined things which are floating around which are quite different again mm, that's great and it feels like your practice and process is kind of a never-ending evolving thing that you know you could go to all sorts of different areas I imagine oh I need thousands of years to do all the stuff <laughs> <laughs> and I'd love to see an exhibition of all your work you know I think that would be really interesting and, and a beautiful exhibition for people to kind of learn about this process of photography, mm. you know, maybe at a um, at a gallery or museum. Yeah, well, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? If especially if someone in New Zealand set up and take notice. But in the meantime, uh, Eric and I are actually having an exhibition in Barcelona uh, in August, wow. which is really exciting. And so Thursday's child works are uh, going over there. So we're about to have a boosted campaign to uh, help get the work on the wall and um, make that happen, and that's a privilege and exciting too, yeah. So if um, any listeners want to contribute to the boosted campaign, we'll have the link on the blog post. Yeah, so that'll be going live in May, but um, watch my website or your blog post or something like that. Mm. Oh, that's brilliant, and you're amazing. You know, you guys are so proactive in what you do. Well, I guess we love what we do and it's easy then, isn't it? Mm. Um, well, it's not easy, but you just keep going and um, it builds its momentum. And, of course, we sort of feed and encourage each other and that helps too. And we've got some fabulous friends, artist friends nationwide who support us and, and of course, our precious buyers mm. who just make you want to keep on keeping on. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I'd love to know what kind of art you and Eric have on your walls apart from your own. (laughs) Well, I'm sitting under a 
George Chance um, photograph, Autumn, South Canterbury. Not quite sure when he made that, but it reminds me of my grandfather, HHC, and some of the beautiful old etching uh, plates that he would put over his photographs when he made an image. I have an Anne Noble Wamanui on the right-hand side. Actually, I have two Anne Nobles because Dad used to support her um, in her early days uh, through AGFA. I have a Susan Duges print uh, as well. She's a cameraless photographer in the UK. Uh, we have uh, Bruce Foster. We have uh, Gregory O'Brien and John Paulet. We have all sorts. Um, we love painters as well as photography. So we have full walls. We do have the corridor filled with our own work. but And then we have a beautiful little Neil Driver. Neil is a good friend of Eric's uh, work. And Ange Meacham, who's an artist down in uh, Lawrence. So there's lots. Mm, lots of inspiration for you. And have you ever thought about having a little space on your property? To show your work? No room. Uh, need it for the garden and the photography. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> In the ideal world, possibly. But then again, no, because actually I know my place. Um, <laughs> I need to be making the art and I would prefer gallery people who are good at gallery things to take that spot. Yeah. It would just distract me and I don't have the energy and... Um, I need to be making art. Yeah, that's right. It would be like another job, I guess, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 And um, just to finish off, what advice do you have for people, you know, starting off on their creative journey possibly or maybe you have some advice for people who are, you know, facing a, a challenge at the moment and, um, and then also maybe commenting on um, using art to help you through tricky times? I guess... Be true to yourself, as um, John Sharp said to me in Form 2. You know, listen to yourself. You do know yourself best. Um, it is hard sometimes, but don't give up. And <laughs> my current phrase is actually fight like a Ukrainian. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it's, um, it's important not to give up, to take one day at a time, to seize the day because none of us actually know how long we've got. It's just a bit arrogant to think you're going to keep on going forever. Mm. Um, but to seize the day and make the most of little moments of joy and a really precious uh, phrase that I always have in my diary every year is by Roosevelt, and he talks about um, the man, the person in the arena who fights, uh, whose face is marred by the dust and the sweat and the blood who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again. Um, but he knows the greater enthusiasms and the greater devotions and spends himself in a worthy cause. And to me, that's, I guess, what it's all about, really. It's keep on keeping on one day at a time and don't give up. Mm. And how beautiful that you can kind of record this journey through your art alongside your husband. And, yeah. you know, just it's such a beautiful record of a, of a time that is challenging, but you're learning from and, and developing from at the same time. Yeah, and I hope offering other folk little moments of joy along the way too, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, well, Anne-Marie, on that note, I think we need to wrap it up. But thank you so very, very much for being so generous and open, talking about your um, your cancer journey. And um, I think you will touch many people with this podcast, and I'm sure it will help a lot of people as well. And uh, it's been a complete joy meeting you. I think you're an incredible, positive, amazing woman. And, um, yeah, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Mandy. Really appreciate the opportunity.